0: This is Chase Garberino, co-founder and CEO of HQO, and this is the Let's Go Show. Let's go! All right, Zach Driscoll runs product marketing for HQO. Welcome to the Let's Go Show. It's great to be here. Did Thanks you know the name me. of the show? I
1: did not know the name
0: of the show. The Let's it's a go great show. So we got some fun. We got some fun cultural talking points at the end that I think you'll enjoy. Awesome. But yeah. for the audience, um, Zach was one of the first employees, founding team of HQO, started with us before it was HQO when we were a venture app. So for those of you that listened to the first episode of the pod with Kevin McCarthy and Greg Gomer, Zach was along for the whole ride there. Um, Indeed. Why don't, why don't we start there? When did you join? Uh, how did we get you to join a uh, venture <laughs> app? And what were you doing?
1: Yeah. So for the first about four and a half years of of my career, I was working at pretty big tech companies in the Boston area, um, primarily in sales. Started working at a company called Aquia initially, um, and then after about three years there, uh, transitioned to a company called HubSpot, which I'm sure most people listening to probably know about. Um, for the
0: for the commercial real estate people listening who might not know what Aquia mm-hmm. and HubSpot are, HubSpot are, what do they do?
1: Yeah. So Aquia. Um, the CTO of Acquia had created an open source content management system, basically a website building platform called Drupal. And Acquia was sort of the enterprise services, cloud hosting, consulting business behind, you know, these, this open source free CMS that was Drupal. So really powerful CMS worked really well for large organizations like the Pfizers of the world that had to Manage complexity across multiple countries, um, with people creating content, publishing things that all needed to be compliant. Um, and, you know, open source software was a relatively new thing in that time at Mm -hmm. that time. And, uh, like a platform approach like that with modules was kind of new. Um, so it was really cool to be working at a company like that and getting familiar with cloud infrastructure and getting familiar with how to help big businesses grow, you know, their, their digital footprint. Um, so that was a really great experience to kind of go through sales there and, uh, you know, meet meet a lot of really interesting professionals um, uh, working at these big companies. And then HubSpot is is a lot different in a lot of ways. It's It sells um, an inbound marketing software. And they kind of, well, they'll tell you they invented the concept of yeah, inbound what is, marketing. What is inbound marketing for people
0: that know just what marketing
1: is? Yeah. So inbound marketing is is basically using you know, your website or using digital channels to get people to find your business, right? So just get discovered. Then step two is they, you need to get them to raise their hand and tell you who they are. Mm-hmm. So you got to figure out who they are. And then the third step is you then kind of nurture them over time through whether it's, you know, HubSpot would do a lot of marketing emails or they would have different content that you'd be sending to those folks that, you know, you'd capture their information on. And then eventually through that process, and you, there's a lot of int- intricacies in there that I'm oversimplifying, you know, you turn them into customers. So it was all about for, you know, medium to small businesses, like how do you get online? How do you, generate more revenue um and how can you do that scalably 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 and repeatably. Um so that was a really cool th- experience for me to learn about that and spend some time at a company that was you know had just IPO'd when I started there. They were really killing it. So a couple of companies
0: that were developing essentially technology solutions for businesses that were probably not particularly technology oriented. Exactly. So a little mm-hmm. bit of a trend in for sure your career there. For sure. Also um, interesting about Drupal, the open source CMS you mentioned with Acquia. I believe one of our competitors actually sells, repackages Drupal and sells it. So yeah, one of their you products. can get it for free.
1: You can. That's you important can. for people when they're
0: evaluating <laughs> ten experience software. They should. They should know you can get Drupal for free. You don't have to. You don't have to buy that.
1: No, you don't have to just kind of eat. the we we'll, we'll move on. To... More.
0: Let's let's stay on you. So. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and then how did you come to? What was at the time Venture App?
1: Yeah, so about yeah four and a half or so years into my career, i would really enjoyed being in sales. But I was starting to kind of get that itch where I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of look towards a smaller company, an earlier stage company, and see if there was a way I could, you know, maybe do more or kind of get in at the ground level. It just so happened, you know, one of my colleagues from Acquia reached out saying, you know, they knew some people at Venture App, like knew you, knew that um, you guys were looking to hire um, and that's how I got introduced to you and how I got introduced to the, you know, the VP of sales at the time. Um, kind of went through the interview process initially. Um, and I don't know if you remember this, but I actually went through it. I, I must have done pretty well because I got the offer and I, but I actually initially declined it because I was like, yeah, I feel like maybe. Like, maybe I shouldn't quite leave HubSpot yet. I haven't been there that long. Like, no, maybe, I don't remember Maybe it'll that. look bad. Good neg, though. That's yeah, a good move. It, it, was, it was, I mean, obviously, clearly I was still coming. But, but then after that, <laughs> after that um, the VP sales of sales at the time said, why don't you come back in and speak with Chase and like sit down? And you and I actually sat down and talked a little bit about kind of exactly what I was talking about, about how I did want to. Well, obviously, I knew I was coming to close business and generate revenue, but I wanted to grow and expand. And we had a good, really good conversation about that. And I thought we hit it off really well. So I feel like probably the case with a lot of early stage companies, you know, you 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 pick the companies you want to work for, or maybe even invest in based on the people there and like mm-hmm. believing in the leadership. And that was kind of the thing that really sold me actually to, to come over and start was that last conversation you and I had. How many people were we? 20, I think, at that point in time. And then we went down. I
0: so, mean, so every... Everyone who's listening has the opportunity to hear one version of the story mm-hmm. from myself and the co-founders' perspective, Greg and Kevin, as I mentioned. But what about? Let's hear about your uh, your path from Venture App to HQO and everything that you went through because you've done a lot of different things for the company over the years.
1: <clears throat> yes, for yeah. for sure, and it it is kind of. It's an interesting story because about four months into my, you know, big risk leaving HubSpot, big company doing really well um, to start working at VentureApp, you know, I walk in one morning and like all the sales guys are like just wide eyed kind of looking around like, oh gosh. And like, <laughs> because we were, this is right when we were like, we kind- all kind of saw the writing on the wall, but it was finally happening where it was like, we're really going to like transition strategically and what we're gonna try to do. We're we're not gonna be selling anymore. So there was really no reason to to have a sales team because we were going to be working on something else, potentially pivoting entirely. Um and like pretty much that like, you know, one by one, you know, the sales team's kind of just getting like confirmed what we pretty much already knew that we were getting let go. But you and I actually I was like one of the last people to go and you and I, you were like, hey, why don't we go for a walk? And I was like, all right, here we go. This should be fun. And we like <laughs> got in got in the elevator. I was like staring at the numbers, counting down like trying not to be awkward, like asking you about Bill Belichick or something like hoping <laughs> hoping you'll get on a rant about the Patriots and like forget to fire me or something. Um, just doing whatever I could. And I'll, I'll never forget, you know, at our old office, you know, that Tremont Street walks right down to um, the Boston Common. And like you and I were walking there and you were, as we were walking, you were kind of explaining what was going on and, you know, why we were transitioning and how, you know, just looking at the business model we were working on, it just wasn't going to work out. And we needed to kind of make a move sooner rather than later all this stuff. And and then you kind of like referenced the conversations we had about me wanting to do more and, you know, wanted to continue to grow um, at Ventrap. And you're like, you know, I would love for you to stay. I think you can do more. We've had a good experience with you thus far. Um, like, so we'd love for you to stay on, you know, catch being we can't pay you commission for, you know, probably <laughs> ever, or like at least not for the foreseeable future. Um, so it was... Probably. So it was... It was great to you know be retained and, and to have the opportunity to stay and work with you and like have you and some of the leadership folks feel I you know was worthy of retaining, but it was but it was also you know it was, it was challenging. And the next like year or so was like very tough. And it was you, a tough year. Yeah, and you yeah. always say like it will get hard um, in a lot of our like all company meetings, uh-huh. which was very which was a, a poignant message this year for sure. Um, but like I think back to that time a lot when I think about reminding myself of how, you know, it will get hard and it it was hard because, you know, obviously, income was lower so I couldn't rationalize living in the city anymore. So, I moved out to live with my parents which is a privilege in itself but like yeah. after you've been an adult and then you <laughs> yeah, kind of go tough. back and do that, it it's, is, it's like not the easiest thing in the world to do. We moved from that kind of pretty nice office space into, you know, 90% parking garage, 10% office <laughs> office building <laughs> quote unquote i'm doing air quotes right now for yeah. people listening um yeah like, that was a that was a tough
0: location everything about it was it was a tough downgrade yeah but it was and the like, right financial move it was and from the outside i think probably
1: when you got there you were like this isn't an office it it honestly <laughs> right. it's from the outs from the exterior you would never think that there, were, there was yeah. office space in that building. It certainly doesn't look like it has internet. No, <laughs> no. no. And it didn't.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it <laughs> it for, it didn't. for a while, yeah. we found out yeah. it, in fact, did not have internet. Think, which point- of all the things we needed, that was actually the only thing we could have done with so many other things. We're like, our bar is so low. Yeah. And the one thing we need from this place is a mm-hmm. good internet connection. You have that. And it was like a strong maybe.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I remember at one point we had some company come and put like a big tower on the top of the building to try to get us better internet. That didn't work. And then at one point, Comcast like dug a hole through yeah. like we, we Chinatown had, and was like, yeah. all right, we're going to hook you up. And then I don't think we actually ended up going with Comcast. Yeah. We,
0: what did we do between – it was like what, a two-month period where it was just like literally dead. We we went with like Hightower, the thing on the, the roof.
1: Yeah, and then I, I thought the we did the Verizon it. like Verizon like packs or those like – um we ended up getting like a bunch of mo- like hot hi- my or whatever yeah, pretty much yeah yeah
0: so we yeah. were so we were really winging it i think like part of startup survival is like blocking the memories of some of these things mm-hmm. or at least for me where i'm like just even reliving that the the office itself when you got in it the reaction people always had was like i'm surprised that the inside isn't nearly as bad as i thought mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Then they went to the bathroom. They're like, "Never mind." Yeah, this place mm-hmm. is terrible.
1: And it yeah. was re- it was really rough when we first moved there too. Because I, I don't know if you remember when you almost like got jumped in the stairway of that building yeah like uh yes by I some do. like shady characters of sorts. There was a guy
0: um doing drugs in the in the stairwell of mm-hmm. the. It was a for people listening. It's kind of a uh, it's it looks like mostly an open air parking garage, multiple floors. and um it's like it's on the edge of a little bit of a seedy area in boston and it's supposed to be redeveloped and i remember calling our you know the the property manager at the time being like hey man like we're not a high maintenance client (laughs) we kind of rolled with the punches on the wi-fi situation which was a big deal but the guy doing drugs in the hallway that's that's a
1: bit of a that's, we're gonna that's need that cleaned we, up <laughs> that's where our line is yeah uh, if we you learned work with that that'd be helpful yeah and they did they they did uh like yep, you know, we talked talk about, we talk about security we talked about yeah. like you know internet connection is like priorities for tenants and like they did we got security there they, they did bring people and it was they important. didn't help necessarily with the with the internet but that's all right that's true. that's true that's true that yeah. wasn't great um but yeah so so anyway we go from you know pretty nice office to what we just outlined Mm -hmm. so that wasn't that was challenging and we got down to like a little over 10 people like at that point we were
0: we're probably
1: we're actually going through this
0: the other day so it's myself kevin greg jared Mm -hmm. you Bashond, brendan katie sullivan kate milson
1: danny mack yeah ten. so 10 um so that's you know Again, the transition from, you know, the Acquia Hub spot. Josh. Oh, yeah. And JB, that's right. It um, was a lot. And we had, like, you know, not the, a lot of time to figure out what we were going to be and prove that we were going to be something that was worthy of additional investment and, you know, more more time to grow. And, of course, that while well, all those things are happening, you know, all my former colleagues and, you know, mentors are saying, oh, it kind of sounds like you should get out of there. You know, like, <laughs> like, a lot of, like understandably in a lot of ways, like a lot of skepticism yeah, about know. what's going on. So it's not looking at the situation that you were in, it's
0: not bad advice.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, <laughs> and like, I, th- that was part of the challenge. I kind of, I understood where they were coming from, but again, like, you know, we, you and I had conversations and I was like, I think like, even though it was really hard, I was like, I want to give this, you know, I want to give this a shot. And like, despite all the challenges, I still found that there was just a ton of opportunity for growth for me, you know, Obviously, got incredible exposure to you. I pretty much shadowed you for like a year and, you know, spent a lot of time learning about your routine, your process, the way mm-hmm. you communicated and like got to steal a lot of those things and and make them my own and grew a ton that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and with 10 people being there, you know, you learn pretty quickly that if you're not getting things done, then nothing is getting done. Yep. Um, so, I pretty quickly figured out that like I have to prioritize what I... Of all the things I could do every day, which was a million things, what did I have to do? And I like really quickly figured out how to prioritize the critical things and the things mm-hmm. that would keep the business moving, which is something I do every day now still. Um and then I really did I did so many different things. Like yeah. I, thanks to some of my time at HubSpot pretty much built our website from scratch. Mm-hmm. Started writing blogs, ebooks, um, going to events, setting up our booths, like traveling video. to Yeah, lots of lots of LinkedIn yeah. video at the yep. time, which was a big uh, really big popular thing like going to all of our launch events uh like truly like just exposure to absolutely everything and that was what was in a lot of ways what i was looking for mm-hmm. and when i left hubspot it was the opportunity to to do those things and sure enough as as all of us were kind of going through that and wearing a million hats things did start to turn around you know we like th- we found a good idea turned into a business plan which turned into an mvp which turned into a brand and a website and then you know, we launched at the beginning of 2018 with a pretty finite amount of time to sign some pretty big, you know, commercial real estate customers. And yep. if we don't do it, you know, we're that's that's it for us. And we don't just sign one, you know, we sign three. And then six months later, we raised $6 million from yep. all these key investors in the industry. A year later, we do $34 million, And now we've just hired our 100th person, uh, like roughly a year after that. Yeah. Which is crazy. It's and like, crazy. It's an absurd... That sequence of events is amazing. And obviously, like... In a lot of ways, I, I I feel like the company's success like makes me really proud, and I feel like you know I was I was certainly um, a part of that. But really, I, the personal growth through that pivot period when we were in that office and like things did not look great and everybody was naysaying was really important for me because you know at Aquia and HubSpot the culture there is you know one one company was marching towards an IPO. Ok, we just got acquired. HubSpot just had Mm -hmm. the the culture there is like you know we're awesome, everything's awesome, like things are going to keep being awesome, like we're the best company to work for, and (laughs) like we're killing it and we are growing. And that was to their credit, that was true a lot of the time. It was amazing to work there, and they were they were crushing it. But sometimes like that culture can feel a little like, but not everything's awesome. Like some stuff sucks sometimes, and like it's hard. Like it can be hard to do the stuff. Like we've got a
0: little, we're a little unique, and I think our honesty on some of those things.
1: For sure. And like, it was really important for me to go through that process and go through it with this group of people because like now I know when things maybe kind of suck and aren't great and everything isn't awesome and we're not awesome and not everybody wants you know, jump on the ship. Right. That like we can adapt, you know, I can adapt. We can figure out what we need to do to, to you know, move a business forward. And I've really like gained a ton of confidence by going through that whole process. Like obviously learned a ton in the early parts of my career, but that you know nine to twelve months of like real challenge for us and like when all the like niceties of working at a tech company were <laughs> stripped away and we just got to work were like the most formative you know probably months or a year or so in my in my career so I, I I look back on that time fondly for the most part i mean obviously it was tough um but it was it was a really important experience for me and I think it's uh, impacted you know the people that have joined on after I feel like' it's kind of bed off of that and started to feel that like mentality where we're like, look, we can do anything. If we got through that, we can do this. Yeah, like, right. We can sell to these people. We can figure this out. We can build this product. Right. And I think that mentality has continued to grow as we brought on more people. And I think that's one of the things that makes our culture so great and the employees are so great is that that mentality just exists across the board and it's it's awesome to see. Yeah,
0: I think a lot of people who join pre product market fit startups. So for people listening, product market fit is when you have like, essentially the, the startup processes, you have a hypothesis about a customer problem or need, and you're going to build something and product market fit is if the solution truly matches the need, right? People, startups often screw up because they either think there is a need where there isn't one, which happens uh, significantly more than people think, um, and then execution on delivering the solution. And then beyond delivering the solution, wider market adoption. But I think pre-product market fit, a lot of people join in a startup for the wrong reasons. And not necessarily the wrong reasons, but you, you kind of join for the right reasons with regards to the team. And I think what people who become too enamored with ideas are going to be prone to being let down. Like when you look at the history of startups before instagram was instagram it was a company called bourbon (laughs) so for people who don't know this uh, bourbon was like this location-based game it was kind of like risk but like you'd play in a real city where like you would walk to a block and like claim a block i don't know it's not a very good idea obviously it didn't work and then they became instagram right and they're like before slack was slack they were a multiplayered 3d game kind of like Uh, second life i think is one of those um not a big gamer but like slack just sold for 28 billion dollars to salesforce as a like workplace technology and they were a 3d like imaged game right so the Stuart butterfield who started and ran slack was a successful entrepreneur before that he he had done a couple of companies so it's like when you you really need to like buy into the team of people in terms of their worldview, how they work and like finding a problem to solve mm-hmm. in the process, almost more so than like what the initial hypothesis is. And I don't think a lot of people think about startups that way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's like you you want to follow teams and you want to follow people if you're going to join it at that stage way more than you do ideas. And like this probably tie back to what we talk a little bit about the industry and whatnot, but bus- like the business, like businesses change so frequently and like the problems other businesses Are facing change so much that a great idea might be kind of boring and not that great of an idea in a very short amount of time. Right. You got to continue to figure out like how you can add value, what problems you need to solve. And like that's not something that you can just get from a great idea. You know, that's something that you, you figure out like along the way and you continue to iterate on and and get better at. And, you know, no business survives. It's, you know, first, first deployment into the market and like (laughs) trying to figure out what they are. You know, everybody always has big corrections once they actually, once they actually get it out there. So, it was yeah, that was something that I definitely did not understand in, until that, until going through that in my career. I was fortunate in that I made like you know back the right team early, but you know being at those bigger companies that were just all about this is the greatest business ever. We're you know we're going to the moon. No one's going to stop us. And like hmm. that's and like that's you know the only thing that matters. It was it was really good to to kind of get to understand what it's really like to kind of at the ground level, figure out how to, how to build a business. That was yeah, an amazing you, experience. You went
0: from like top of the tech market to bottom of the basement, complete... Chinatown parking garage. Yeah, right. <laughs> complete startup. But yeah. I actually think that's a pretty beneficial career experience. And I think like for a lot of people, some people are just like, work at a big company and that's what I'm going to do. And if that's what you're going to do and what you know you want to do that's great like to mm-hmm. me sometimes i'm like man that'd be awesome <laughs> like sure. i was cool with that i would be miserable but <laughs> um for people who like wonder about startups i think it's good for anybody in their career and i've seen this with a bunch of friends um working at a true early stage pre product market fit startup forces you in so many ways one you learn a ton about yourself cuz mm-hmm. you're like oh shit like to your point if this doesn't if i'm not doing nothing's gonna happen Mm -hmm. and there's like a certain desperation like that you you got to play the game with and you're forced to there's no like playbook there's no like day-to-day like what's my job today to some degree like you've Mm kind of got a lane and you've got a purview right like Mm -hmm. if you're not writing code working on product you're focus on customers but what that means in an early stage startup is pretty nebulous yeah yeah (laughs) it's it's a lot of everything and nothing at the same time right Mm -hmm. so i think it's really interesting to see people it's good for anybody to do 12 to 18 months at a really early stage startup to to find out can i do this do i want to do this or should i never consider ever doing this again because Mm -hmm. it's really not for I think a lot of people like have seen the social network and they're like, oh, these guys are like partying while writing code, which definitely never happened. <laughs> um, but that looks cool. Right. And then you it just does. become multimillionaires, which mm-hmm. it's not really how it goes.
1: No, not at all. You, yeah. <laughs> there's typically a good amount of struggle in it. And But mind you, though, I'm, I'm ready for when we become that, you know, as we are in the process of becoming that thing, we're. You know, everyone wants to jump on the ship and we're taking off and flying to the moon. I'm I'm also ready for that transition back into that. <laughs> yeah, but I'm right. very, very glad and you I did I think, your tour of duty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm very glad that, that we we had to go through that process. I think you know everybody who is here for it, and I, again I think the people that have come on after are are benefiting from it. I really yeah, do. Sure. I think there's a belief and there's a confidence that we wouldn't have had otherwise.
0: Yeah. Iron's made through fire. hmm So what do you think's harder? And I I think I know the answer, but the year you described, or this year?
1: That's a tough one. As, as I will say, this year has been a challenge. But I'll go with I'll go back to that year, though. Still, so many transitions for me. This year, mm-hmm. at least, we've still, you know, we've very scary first first like six weeks or so of the pandemic for us, with you know the nature of our business and you know the office space in general. But I've actually been really encouraged by our growth and like the, the people we've brought on and the way the industry's been reacting. Um, so I'd say like. I'll stick with the I'll stick with the, the pivot year, um, but I am very sick of working out of my apartment and sitting in my kitchen while yeah. zooming with people. You're an office guy, though. I You've am. Been uh, in here. I've been in oh, yeah. yeah for a while.
0: For those listening, we are in the office. So Zach's an office guy.
1: What about for you? Do you think p- like pivot year versus this year? Which one's been harder? Um, I think
0: they're probably a wash. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pivot year professionally was maybe harder Mm -hmm. in that there was just like you know we're very well capitalized now we've got a really stable customer set in our business from a as you alluded to we've done quite well from a growth perspective we didn't necessarily think we would but we have um back then there's so much uncertainty and it wasn't like the whole world was uncertain it was just us, <laughs> you know, like yeah. there are other people I'm sure going through similar situations, but this, at least you're kind of in it with the industry collectively, right? There are a lot of people aligned with your interests. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people have a lot at stake, not just commercial real estate in terms of their business model and obviously wanting to bring people back. But cities, municipalities have a ton at stake in terms of you know, the commercial real estate category in their tax revenue contribution Mm -hmm. it's really important that funds schools and critical things for you know the the infrastructure of how society works so Mm -hmm. i think a lot of people are kind of marching towards the same thing which makes it uh, a little easier in that sense certainly hasn't been easy but um that looking back on it though it was kind of fun like I think what people don't like when you when you raise capital, you never want to lose people's money, right? And venture is it's a um, high risk asset class. Mm-hmm. There's significantly more failure than success, and VCs take a portfolio approach to absorb high failure rates, right? Like mm-hmm. it's Babe Ruth baseball, swing really hard if you bat. 250 and you're hitting home runs and grand slams it doesn't matter if you strike out three out four times Mm -hmm. right so they don't mind failure but the people at the company we don't have a portfolio approach right like we're all in on one thing so it doesn't make us feel any better that they're going to be okay and vcs are pretty i don't think anybody feels like terribly bad for vcs either way (laughs) Um, but when you're when you failed at like attempt number one which we did, right? Like we tried to build a venture app and it was a failure. You're kind of playing with nothing to lose, right? Mm -hmm. Because most people, like your investors, people that have left the company, former customers, like everybody said it's a failure and they write you off. So you're kind of playing with nothing to lose. True. Um, Which was a fun way to play the game. You're also playing desperately, right? Like there is a, you're looking at the money in the bank account going down, (laughs) never miss payroll in your career at previous companies like point of pride you got all these people that have stuck around like you Mm -hmm. right that you're mostly doing it like we gotta we gotta win for them right like you're trying Mm -hmm. to win for the team and that was fun and then when you do go through and i think this is where it's not just startups it's like a high performing team if you played like sports growing up or in college zach here uh big college football player uh shows most people who join. His highlight reel, which is pretty good. (laughs) That is not, that is not true. uh, It is pretty good. I (laughs) I have to admit, um, it's, there's a going through something really hard is always the best experience when you're going through something hard, particularly with a team of people. Right. Mm -hmm. So you don't like no grit, no pearl. So it's kind of like, it sucks at the time, but it makes it so much better when you do it. So it's it's a cool story we got a long way to go obviously we're not Mm -hmm. done but we are on the trajectory that a lot of people you know i got an email from a guy today saying hey i'm working on this prop tech company um we believe we can be like the platinum standard in category x just like hqo and i was just laughing because i was like (laughs) imagine if this guy knew where we were like (laughs) three four years he thinks we're the platinum standard like super flattering yeah but uh i was like man that's funny." platinum standard like we talk about it but somebody else saying it was Mm -hmm. was like you would not have thought when we were sitting in that garage with the guy doing drugs in the stairwell that somebody would be sending me that email uh
1: three years later so that was that was nice to hear it's been a crazy journey and i know at least for me throughout the throughout the entire time at hjo and venture i've been doing different things in different roles all the time and you've obviously been the ceo the whole time but your role has changed so much. I mean, it like, used to be like you and I selling like really tactical out there all the time. And now, you know,
0: well, you, I used to say this to people all the time. It's a little embarrassing to be like, I'm the CEO of a company <laughs> when there's 10 of us, sometimes even smaller headcount, sitting in a room like chief executive it's like you you (laughs) you take the title ceo because it's when you talk to investors it's like all right who's in charge of raising the money and ultimately Mm -hmm. you know who we're gonna call if things are going well or not going well and then to customers you try to you know act bigger than you are in some ways Mm -hmm. but it's a little bit silly to call yourself a chief executive yeah and when people tell me that they want to be a ceo I mean, my honest answer is any asshole can be a CEO. You pay the small fee to start an LLC in Delaware, mm-hmm. and boom, there yeah, you go. There like it It's it's, yeah. re- it's really hard to become it. any other C-level <laughs> oh, yeah. position, yeah. because typically you need to get, get someone to give you that title, whereas mm-hmm. I'm like, if you want to be a CEO, you can literally do that probably before the end of business day today.
1: <laughs> yeah, not that hard, but... <laughs> yeah. uh, but like your, your role has really started, like you are now turning into, you know, like a real full blown CEO where, you know, more people are coming onto the board, got more executives that you're working with with diverse backgrounds and, mm-hmm. you know, really exceptional backgrounds in the case of most of the execs here. Yeah. So like for, from your perspective, I mean, how has that transition been? And like, what are your priorities these days? And like, are you enjoying it as much as you were enjoying the, the like days when we were kind of tight roping it on our own or like what's, what's uh, on your good, mind these days
0: yeah it's a good question i think like being um a founder uh, and a co-founder is a very different skill set than obviously being a chief executive officer of a company right and um in the early days typically what a founder needs is like some sort of superpower um mm-hmm. you're either really like when you look at people who have started companies there are like phenomenal at coding and they can build a product by themselves um you look at like dan mccarthy who is one of our early employees is like superpowers like crazy he's one of the best designers he could write the code Mm -hmm. for an application like i think he is a one-man startup right now (laughs) actually and he has like a lot of successful apps in the app store um kevin mccarthy is like that right like can Mm -hmm. just teach himself code and has a superpower or You're like a market mover, right? Like you've got an audience, you've got vision, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Like Elon Musk is probably like one of those people. Mm -hmm. I don't really have one. um, (laughs) So I had to like, I can convince people to do stuff, but that's probably like the, my, my skill set I've always believed would be better as the company got bigger than necessarily Mm -hmm. like in finding product market fit. Um, In some ways I'm a little too optimistic for pre-product market fit. I think you need to be, and I struggled with this earlier in my career. um, You need to be both like, you need to tone out most of the negative feedback because a lot of people say something won't work because when things are new, most people think it won't work. Like if it were obvious, everyone would do it. And it's usually not a good indicator if like everybody's like, yeah, it's a great idea. You're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But you also have to be, super self critical and there's like this dichotomy that you need to balance. So um I was originally probably too optimistic like would read too much in false positives at Streetwise our first company. Um and then it was like kind of a you were an athlete when you when you start to go from like uh, middle school to high school, high school to college, college to different levels. I never made it past college, but everybody talks about like the 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 game gets faster right and it's mm-hmm. hard like when you're playing with people that are better than you you're like oh the game's fast and when you start to get to the level of other people they use the analogy the game slows down right like mm-hmm. you can see everything better you kind of know what's going to happen before it starts to happen right like you watch great athletes and like they're just ahead of people and there was an inflection point venture up where i felt the game start slow down i'd been at it for uh, probably 10 years and mm-hmm. mostly chasing my tail or what it felt like. Mm-hmm. And then I started to kind of figure out, like, no, nah, that's a false positive. Shouldn't hire this person. I've seen this before. Mm-hmm. That customer is not going to buy. They're blowing smoke up or, you know, whatever. This investor is not going to invest. Like, game started to slow down a little bit. Um, then we got product market fit and you and I, I mean, literally went out. And Paul Graham, the guy who runs Y Combinator, who I've referenced on the podcast a bunch of times, writes a great blog. He has, you know, a pretty good essay for people trying to start businesses, get out of the building, right? Like mm-hmm. when you're sitting internally talking about an idea, it's the worst way to do it. Get out of the building, get in front of people that might buy, right? Mm-hmm. And we, I mean, we got out of the building.
1: Like <laughs> that we, did. we went into
0: kind of like hypercharge, get in front of you, uh, me and josh Belinsky, who was an early early employee um team member of ours we were in front of commercial real estate people every day mm-hmm. like and we got dialed in pretty quick um and i don't think any of us none of us actually are now right like we're not just true blue salespeople mm-hmm. but we were the early salespeople and now we've all kind of morphed into different roles so i think I was better suited for where the company was going than the early stage, but I also enjoyed the process a lot. And I figured out my role in, um, I think, finding product market fit that if I had to do it again, I don't know if I'd be better at it, but I wouldn't be as bad as I was. Like, I would <laughs> know what not to do getting in the way of. Some of the things that we screwed up on the way there,
1: for sure. And it was interesting at that time. I think when we started to realize we were onto something was how quickly we started getting audiences with people we assumed we would never get audiences with. <laughs> yeah, so we were like reaching out to these big, you know, commercial real estate investment companies and like get, hearing back from the C-suite people, being like, "This is interesting. We're like thinking about this." And so we yeah. were in the we, we were like, "Oh, we, <laughs> we were quickly in the room with people that we like really didn't have the business being have like didn't have any business being in the same room as." And they were, "Do like, you remember listen. some of the early groups that were?" Oh yeah. Who were we talking to? I vaguely remember. Well, I mean, I mean, we're still talking to one of them. That we, I don't know if you remember us going up to Toronto. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, that was a crazy room to be two of us presenting in at that point in time. That was like early 2018.
0: I do have a hilarious memory of a pitch. You'll know what one it was, but I won't reference it. Like at the end of it, I think
1: you and I fist bumped thinking it went really well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we didn't get that business
1: no, no. no we definitely we weren't quite we weren't we, we weren't ready you know what i mean but no we, but no. it was but we were learning and i actually i know you said you don't necessarily have a superpower but i do I, if i were to give you one if i were to pick one for you it'd be learning i think like the how quickly we went from you know figuring out what business we wanted to be to being in those rooms and like you know having the conversations and figuring out what we needed to build. Like that happened really fast. And I think it's partly due to your approach and just so uh, you're constantly kind of learning and educating yourself on the industry and the customer set and and all that stuff. And I feel like it's interesting to hear you say, like it, it just kind of took some experience for you to figure out some of that first, you know, CEO stuff. Like, are there ways you are like going about trying to learn like what that next level of, and like what that next speed of the game is going to be? And like, yeah. are there ways you try to close that gap now? Because it's, Yeah. And actually, that's a good framework.
0: And that's interesting that you have that insight. And I didn't necessarily have it about myself. But I think the reason that it's easier now is in the early stage, if you don't have like a clear kind of like one of those superpowers, it's really hard to like, I approach things like the athlete I described, like when you read about the and again, I'm a sports junkie and washed up athlete that was not uh you know well, i didn't make it to the pros um but when you look at the process of people that everyone talks about jordan brady kobe they study in like their students right like they break down and when they you like when you hear kobe talk about jordan he was like he broke down every single element of the game he thought about can i dribble to my left and shoot a pull-up mid-level jumper? Can I dribble to my left and do a pull-up three? Can I fade to my left shoulder? Can I fade to my right shoulder? Can I get to the hoop? You know, do I shoot off the dribble, shoot off the catch? Can I defend? Can I rebound? Like Every mm-hmm. single tiny detail of the game, they knew what was best in class at that, and they just like would pick an element and they would hammer home that piece of their game. Mm-hmm and like the early stage stuff is so hard because it's so much more art than science when you start to think about like the role later stage it's much easier to break down the game if mm-hmm. you will so like i focus on and it's it's different than sports because in sports you know it is very much a finite game rather than an infinite game but in business and particularly like if you're if you want to move into a leadership position you have to you have to figure out what you're good at and really focus on what you're good at, figure out what you're not good at that needs, that's required of the business. And instead of working on those pieces of your game, you need to get really good at identifying who is good at those, right? Because mm-hmm. scale is getting work done through others and then ultimately being able to bring people on that are better than you. And that's like mm-hmm. a critical part of building, Right. If you can't convince people that are better than you at something to join, then you're always capped at your own talent level Mm -hmm. and no one is talented enough to do all those things, right? So, you know, I look at the things, the categories where I'm like, all right, I want to be best in class and I, my, my process is a triage information, right? Like I have certain books that I read over and over again every year Mm -hmm. for the categories where, you know, if it's leadership strategy management negotiation storytelling are the five that Mm -hmm. i focus on and it's like all right continue to get into like very very finite details of that skill set and like what what did the best in class do and then as you start to get better at them and there's no playbook it's like all right how can you start to do things that people haven't thought about Mm -hmm. and then it's picking the talents like when you think of like day-to-day management or project management some of the things that i'm not the best at like all right who is best at that why are they best at that how do you kind of pair your skills with them which is you know getting people to to buy into something right Mm -hmm. so i i kind of have this like informational loop where i revisit a lot of the same material information which is just like shooting your free throws every day Mm -hmm. and then you start to add new things to the arsenal so and it, then it comes down to like the nitty gritty details of calendar management, like block time during the mm-hmm. week. I don't think a lot of people think about practice in work, right? Like mm-hmm. you practice before you play a game at work. A lot of people just show up and do what they think they need to do that day. I try to break down time where I'm practicing mm-hmm. and then doing, and it's very deliberate between the two. Can I get you closer we it we talked about table. this. We talked about this. I was specifically not supposed to tap the table and I was not supposed to sit far away, but I did. Yeah. That's something that acknowledging I'm never going to be the
1: best at
0: talking into the mic. Yeah. Like we got to find people who are better at that than me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's interesting to hear you say that you revisit those kind of like five topics consistently and kind of have those foundational things like books you're reading on them. Because that's actually like an Elon, Elon Musk kind of approach. He calls it like kind of the tree, like learning tree approach where you kind of start by learning like the building blocks of an idea or or like a concept or an industry and like you kind of build the trunk of it first which is like those works you revisit every every mm-hmm. year and then like if you get that there then like you can start to layer on more complexities as the tree kind of grows and expands from there and like that's you know that's one of the reasons why people say you know he's able to do all these different things in different industries however you feel about him it's an interesting concept and I think it based on what you're saying I think it kind of supports that idea that like like, kind of learning is, is about kind of having the foundational things that you want to revisit and you want to, like, make sure you never forget. And then you can kind of add all the, like, all the niceties and the little intricacies and the complexity on top of, like, that foundation of stuff you know is a priority. Yeah. Which is – I think it's a pretty cool way to approach it.
0: Which is why you and I always well worked well together because you, you have an appetite for learning. Like, you enjoy the process <laughs> like I do. And mm-hmm. you're interested – not just in what you're learning but the process learning how other people learn right Mm -hmm. like it is like sport to you like you think about it the same way i do like Mm -hmm. i'm fascinated like elon musk talks about like brain cycles i mean he literally monitors the energy he has in his brain to devote to different things like on Mm -hmm. a daily basis and that starts to inform like i've taken that and seen you know decision making is a depleting resource every day Mm -hmm. right you can only make so many decisions per day without losing, you know, you have a certain amount of mental stamina. So there's like two vectors you think of that on, which is how do you increase decision-making capacity? How do you increase your stamina? And then how do you stack rank and prioritize where you use your mental energy on mm-hmm. any given day? And then, you know, that starts to intersect with business etiquette because some people <laughs> yeah. think like, well, why it? why aren't they making a decision on X, Y, and Z and like, you know, that's a whole nother rabbit hole we mm-hmm. could go we could go down on. Uh Chase,
1: we done where you share some, some of your
0: rereading list and some of that stuff. It feels like a
1: good time to do it if we have Flip it
0: on Zach. Yeah. Um I don't think we have. Yeah, so the the things that I reread and learn. I actually got the I'll pull up my my list uh to my notebook that's out on the desk, but I know most of it. Um so they're like different content formats, but I always revisit um from a leadership perspective. It's dense and it's a really, really hard read like every year. So I'm I'm probably on it every 18 months. Um Team Arrivals, which is uh the book about Lincoln and how mm. he pulled together his team of people that won all ran against him in the presidential election, uh when he won. Um and then he, you know, he pulled people from other sides of the aisle too into his cabinet. And uh specifically with that, I I try to like I think business leadership books are kind of like fad diets. Like we talk about this when we do leadership training here. Um Most of them are like, if, if you need new types of material over and over again, and there's like some new leadership thing, like that's just kind of like a propped up bullshit business, right? Mm -hmm. Um, extreme ownership, uh, is the other one that I read every year. Mm -hmm. And the the follow-up to that is dichotomy of leadership, which is by, um, what's his name? Jocko Willink, uh, former Marine. And I think those are probably the best uh leadership books that you should read every year that can apply back to business in terms of excellence and these are our um some of our values um i study it's not necessarily books but i do constantly look at um people that were excellent and what their process was together mm. right so the co- the athlete example but if you read the book um grit by i think her name's angela Duxworth, which is a really good one following like the the person who was the editor of cartoons for the new york magazine and his process (laughs) as to how he got there phenomenal story of like dedication to excellence he wrote like
1: thousands of cartoons or drew like thousands of cartoons right crazy yeah
0: yeah (laughs) um storytelling is another one that i focus on i typically look at it i've done the um the kind of like pixar storytelling model and i again like it's not a business thing which is why i like it so um how pixar tells stories in there uh they have a framework for how they tell stories i think simon sinek's start with y mm-hmm. is probably the best resource for that um negotiation i only read one it's never split the difference <laughs> by chris voss that and i don't amazing. want other people reading that um <laughs> no but if they did everything would be more efficient and we'd get to deals so much quicker um so everybody should read never split the difference um what else do i uh i've started to sprinkle in like um high growth handbook for just how you think about building companies over and over again um more will come to me but Mm -hmm. what about you
1: yeah i've got there's like all the ones because obviously because i've I've gotten this list from Chase before so I've I often I've read those books as well and like they're all they're all awesome and I've revisited never Split the difference um every year since I've read it because it really is incredible. But like communications one that I think about a lot um for me so communicate to influence is actually a really good one it's by Ben Decker and Kelly Decker that actually Mark Rosenthal here introduced me to mm. um which is just about it kind of really helped me reevaluate just how I n- not just like you know present to people and speak publicly but communicating on a daily basis and like communicating effectively and, and the strategies behind that, that's been an awesome one. And kind of, kind of similarly was team of teams, which was, um, by general Stanley McChrystal, um, who, you know, helped lead the special forces, um, against Al Qaeda in Iraq during kind of like the early to mid two thousands and kind of how we took these really, um, siloed kind of different parts of the the army and kind of turned them into, you know, um, what he talked about is sort of having a shared consciousness to empower execution. And I think that rings really true with a department, with a company, mm-hmm. with groups. So there's a, a lot, a lot of great stuff to be learned there. So those are two that i communications one I think about a lot for myself and that those two are, are two highlights that I've read in the last few years.
0: Atomic habits. Yeah. That's another good one that so, I try to read. Mm-hmm. Um, Team of teams is a great one. Mm-hmm. I've read, I've done that twice. Um, And then we've talked about it before, but the way that I triage is I'll listen to a book. And if Mm -hmm. I don't make it through, I just move on. Uh, And Naval Ravikant, the guy who runs AngelList actually has a really good, he's like, never set a goal for yourself in terms of numbers of books to read. He's like, that's Mm -hmm. a vanity metric. If you don't get value out of something, don't do it. Right. Like you do have limited space in the hard drive. Mm -hmm. So I listen. And like, if there's, if there's good stuff and good learning, then I read, right? So I get it both, you know, multiple ways. And then if after I read it, it's valuable, I'll reread it, mark it up, create an outline, my own cliff notes, and then like reference back. So when I reread, oftentimes I'm kind of going into like specific parts of what I got value out of like Bob Iger's book not something that you need to reread but very much a tactical manual for like how he what he did at disney when he took over as ceo and there are things that i'll go back and reference that are that are really useful to like something that you're dealing with in the in the day job um
1: trying to think what but, other there was one you recommended to me um i can't remember the author's name but it's called execution um yep. that that was like a really yeah i didn't get all the way through that one but i i was like i was really enjoying some of some of the information in there um and ram sharam i believe and larry bossity
0: larry was the number two to jack welsh at ge and then i think he went and ran honeywell um and that's like old school
1: it was it was old school yeah Yeah.
0: super old school great book i probably read that like every three four years yeah uh and i never finish it it's dense it's pretty dense it's dense and it's it's not outdated Mm -hmm. but it's um it takes work to apply the principles to modern day business, but it is phenomenal. And I think it like a lot of the connecting people, strategy and operations, their triangle of how the three come together. I think a lot of companies fall down on one of those points. You know, mm-hmm. some people have a great strategy and they have no clue, like ultimately how to get the right people for it and then what the people should be doing. Right. Operations. Mm-hmm. Um not often do you see, like, you, you see some companies that have phenomenal operations, but they're not keeping up with the market and evolving their strategy. And then some people just suck at the people process. And particularly in, like, the business that we're in, technology, all of your cost is people. The whole business is people. Like, um, so the three coming together, I think, are really, like, important and informative, modernizing some of the, mm-hmm. the concepts. Because I think it's, like, early 90s.
1: Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It It is. Yeah. You can tell when you're reading it, it's like they're referencing stuff that's happened. That's a little bit outdated. But some of those older pieces I actually think are really interesting for the foundational things that you can pull out that's like, that's still relevant today. Yeah. Like one of my, this is a short one too. I think like I read this probably like more than once a year. It's called Marketing Myopia, which is by Theodore mm-hmm. Levitt, who was a um, marketing professor at um, Harvard Business School, like in the 60s. And um, this thing's been reprinted like thousands of times. And it's just all about um the idea of like being customer centric with with your company and with your product not being too focused on like the product itself and more focused on like the market and like the problems you're trying to solve mm-hmm. he talks a lot about how like you know a lot of like every industry was once a growth industry including like Definitely. industries that are now commodities right um and like he cites, you cite know, railroads as a great example of like you know railroads used to be this powerful force in the United States but now they've been kind of relegated to and they're not nearly as relevant as they used to be. Um, but that's not because the need for transportation decreased. It it's right. increased significantly. They've just been replaced by cars and they've been replaced by airplanes. Yeah. So it's about how do you, re- how do you like realize you're not in the railroad business as a railroad company? You're in the transportation business yeah. and like that concept and right. taking think asking the question, like one of the big things he opens it with is like figuring out what business are you in and like answering that question from the customer perspective. Mm-hmm. I think that's it's a quick read. It's an awesome read. And like that's one I try to just remind myself of every year because it kind of anchors you in the things that I think really do matter, particularly with a growing business like ours. that's evolving quite a bit.
0: Yeah, I think that I mean, that's kind of interesting with commercial real estate. Like mm-hmm. you think about you're not in the business of rail, you're in the business of moving people and things. Mm hmm. You're not in the business of, um, if you if you're an office landlord, you're not really in the business of just providing a roof over pe- over people's heads, right? You're in the business of providing an environment for productivity mm-hmm. and like economic output, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't I don't necessarily know if they've made that leap, right? Like mm-hmm. they they never thought, and a lot of people didn't think this unless you read ben thompson's stratechery right like a lot of folks don't understand and this goes for a lot of industries not just commercial real estate but is there is there a potential digital substitute to your product and offering right like zoom ipo'd a couple of years ago and i don't think anybody in commercial real estate was like "Ooh, we could be fighting <laughs> zoom for yeah. budget from companies on ultimately like connecting people to get work done right Mm -hmm. and now that's you know i I don't think digital tools are a substitute i think they're ultimately a complement to physical space and you see that kind of repeated throughout history but it is from a budget perspective like how much dollars are going to be allocated to what right like Mm -hmm. that's a question in terms of like share of wallet how much of it will be permanent long-term lease versus other tools
1: Exactly. And I mean, that's obviously even more interesting question now with what's happened in 2020, right? Where probably for the first time ever in commercial real estate, at least for a lot of tenant companies, they're not asking where and how and what our office should be. They're asking, you know, if we even need an, like, do we even need an office? You know, that's the first, it's like probably the first time a lot of companies are really asking that question in the way they are right now. Right. Um, and being able to kind of figure out, you know, as a commercial real estate owner in the office space, you know, what are, what are what business are you in? what value are you providing and like how are you going to be able to communicate that and how are you going to be able to keep up with all of a sudden this new competition you're kind of or at least this share of wallet you're kind of competing over um, for, for tenant companies? I think it's a really it's an, it, it was already it was a it was a transition that was already happening in commercial real estate to to an extent but like you know everything has just been accelerated this year. it'll be very, very interesting to see kind of as vaccines come out, And like people start coming back into the office, is everyone coming back in? How's that going to happen? I think it'll be. I think you know the change is just starting um, in commercial real estate, and the the impact is just starting to be quantified, um, like these days. So it's it's going to be a going to be a wild run for us and everyone (laughs) tied to that market. Yeah,
0: and I think a lot of people because we are social animals, I think a lot of people know that they need to be doing work in person. Mm -hmm. But where what I haven't what I haven't heard yet uh when we've kind of flipped the script right like when we're selling into a landlord we hear all the time like quantify the ROI and you know we're negotiating a lease expansion right now and i said the same thing i was like mm-hmm. what's the ROI of us taking the space like will you know will you be able to market more product because we're <laughs> going to take another floor will we sell more like will our employees be more engaged or happier or more productive, like what's the ROI statement? It's a, it's a hard question mm-hmm. to answer, right? It is. Especially for a group of buyers and we love our customers, of course, but it's a group of buyers that are pretty demanding about the ROI for things that they buy. For sure. And yet it's a really hard for their offering because its uh, it's been kind of the default, like you have to have an office. They've never had to answer that ROI question, right? Like yeah. It's really hard. It's and really it's hard.
1: And it's never been easier to pick up and move offices. You know, now everyone's just got a laptop, and they, you know, need, hopefully you can provide internet. I mean, that doesn't <laughs> yeah. always happen. Um, it's a good start. That's some ROI yeah. right there. Yeah, where, where it used to be like kind of implied you needed the office partly because you know the, inf- the technical infrastructure, all the computers were in there, and like that was really where you could access you know all of the work tools you needed to access. But that's just not the case anymore. Right. It's pretty easy to move. It's um, it's and as as we found out, a lot of companies can make it work remotely obviously i'm i'm a huge fan of the office in general and being in the office and i think you know collaboration is like one of the key outputs of you know being in a space with other people um and that's like where a lot of value comes from for a lot of companies these days um but but it is it's a tough question to answer and i think a lot of commercial real estate owners are going to have to have pretty buttoned up and like leasing folks are going to have to have buttoned up or data to support the ROI claims that they're making it's no longer implied and it's right. it's um it's something they're going to have to defend which is which is new. Yeah, and it's a unique
0: um business in that they they haven't had to really understand how people use the product, which is mm-hmm. there's just not a lot of industries like that, right? You can't sell like if you sell food and you have no clue if it's delicious or not, like that's really tough business <laughs> to be in, right? Mm-hmm. When you when you sell commercial real estate and you don't know what people are doing in the space, which has been the, you know, primarily, you don't have a good idea of how people actually use the product. You don't know, except anecdotally, how often people use conference rooms, uh, trends on how often they come with time, things like that. It's starting to get better from a data collection perspective, but there's just a lot of businesses that we've already seen, you know, consumer goods that sit on the shelf of certain retailers like they've always been disconnected from the consumer and now they're getting much much smarter and closer to the consumer on who's mm-hmm. buying and um you know what what they like about it what they don't like about it right uh and it's it's an interesting process to watch some of the some of the players in the space start to kind of wake up to oh we got to do this like mm-hmm. we need to know significantly more about how people use the space and if you embrace it, you're actually going to be in a position to create more value because companies want product productive and engaged employees. And I think they've recognized that people sitting by themselves in apartments, houses, whatever it is, there's just the net loss is too great, right? Mm-hmm. Like from a culture perspective, from a learning perspective, from a collaboration perspective, from a competitive perspective. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think a lot of individual employees necessarily think about it this way but we behave like those around us most of us and like if other people are selling if other people are doing things like then you push to match it whereas if Mm -hmm. you're sitting by yourself there isn't the same social environment to drive productivity um and if you can be an expert in that we're in the business of creating an environment where your employees are going to be Mm -hmm. highly productive and engaged there's so much more money to be made because mm-hmm. there's very clear ROI on that.
1: Oh, no question. Yeah, and it's and there's obviously there are so many opportunities to save money, to make more money through like having a better sense of what's what's going on in the building and that's I think the biggest theme in like all of, you know, these different, you know, these, you know, opportunities we get brought into, you know, requests for proposal that we get, probably the top thing we see almost all the time is like we need to get direct to our consumer and like close yeah. that gap. Is like you said. I mean, having any sort of divide between you and the people that ultimately you know fuel your business and drive revenue for you is a serious, serious uh, red flag, and it's, yeah. it opens up the door for people to slip in there and, and create problems for you. Yeah. And I think like closing that gap is 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 a priority for most of the industry right now, and it's just going to continue to to become more and more of a differentiator in in an expected. You know, no longer a vitamin, but truly a, a painkiller for. Mm-hmm for the industry and something that's absolutely essential. So it's, it's, uh, I I'm with you. I think people are, people are going to be back in the, in the office for all the reasons you said, but it will be interesting to see if it's going to be full weeks. If there's going to be hybrid approaches, the interesting thing is everyone's evaluating that right now. Yeah. And having, being able to prove that value is, is as important right now as it's maybe ever been. Um, at least so it seems.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, um, I think the metrics for engagement need to change, right? Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily think about, like, five days a week. Like, that's not really how people think about work, particularly office work now, right? What are the key metrics? If you were to think of a building similar to how we think about, like, software usage, there are vanity metrics, right? Like, total amount of people who sign up for an app. doesn't really matter. Like, you can get a ton of people to sign up for an app. Mm -hmm. Um, Do they use it? More importantly, when they use it, what do they do, right? Mm -hmm. So... I think the the usage of thinking of a building like an app, what are the things from a usage perspective that you want to drive that kind of engagement? And for real estate, the challenges uh, and what obviously we work on is how do you capture that engagement? How do you, what is the mechanism to collect that data on? What type of engagement drives business metrics of leasing and rental rates and all mm-hmm. that stuff? Um but i think that needs to become the the mindset in terms of starting to figure out what are the forms of engagement how do we capture those engagements when they happen from a database perspective and then how do we value them right like it's an interesting challenge because it's both physical hardware technology as well
1: as software mm mm-hmm. yeah and then just also making sure that Like the, the data model and the way you're structuring data and the way you're collecting it is like aligned with those things and like making sure you're not just taking in all the data you can and like throwing into some giant data lake. And it's just all this kind of messy stuff somewhere. (laughs) Like you're not all of a sudden just because you have data going to like have all these insights and going to be able to, you know, take action and your assets and optimize operations. Like you have to, you have to figure out to your point, like what like maybe we're still learning about some of those key engagement metrics and those indicators, but like, what are the things we really want to understand now? What can we start to build upon and map those back to, you know, as a, as a portfolio manager, like what are the objectives of these assets of our portfolio in general and, and figuring that out early? Cause it's, it's, uh it's really, it's very common for companies that are kind of going through this process to, to start building, to collecting data, then it turns into some mess and then down the road you're, Hiring some company to come in and clean it up for you for millions of dollars, if not tens of millions of dollars. And it just right. turns into this tangled web. And you can, you can make things worse if you don't have a good plan yeah. for like deploying technology for collecting data. And it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's an exciting, but an interesting challenge for a lot of like the, the folks we talk to who are trying to figure out a lot of moving parts because buildings are super complicated. To your point, right. there's hardware, there's software, and then there's people and people are. Yeah, Or super complex Esky <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So it's not it's not easy stuff to figure out. Um but it's it's a it's a very so just a, a really like time I think of a lot of transition in the way the, the real estate market's thinking about things and we know this I think because we you know work with some of the biggest people in the industry and like some of the largest owners on the planet and they're these are the conversations we're having. It's like yeah. this exact stuff and like it's only going to continue to move its way, you know, down to the rest of the market after this. Um, so it's, it's a really fun from going from the Chinatown parking garage to like (laughs) being in this position and like getting to help these companies that have done really amazing work and built amazing cities, figure out how to keep going and like create, keep creating value is pretty amazing challenge to be able to take on. And we're
0: just starting. And now one of my favorite parts of the let's go show, we do (laughs) a little bit of a lightning round. Um, we talked a lot about learning, Mm -hmm. so I'll skip that one. Um, But for those listening, our Let's Go, Learning Excellence, Truth, Speed, Goodness, and Ownership, um, we come up with some fun questions for each of some of these. So we'll start on truth because this one is like perfect for you. Mm -hmm. We have two truth questions. Number one, what are some of your professional pet peeves? And then number Mm. two, what is an unpopular opinion that you hold?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. The second one, I've got so many I could say. <laughs> um, does it? Do the? Does the second question have to be professional, or can it just be in general?
0: Uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna set. I can't tell a bird not to fly.
1: Okay. <clears throat> so, let's see, professional pet peeves. I would say this is probably like the number one I have is um, <clears throat> is coming up to people at the office and like asking them a question about, you know, maybe something having to do with work or, you know, maybe something you're trying to figure out and not first considering or like looking at what that person might be doing or working on themselves. You know, we work in an office that's designed specifically for collaboration to let people, you know, talk amongst themselves. But if someone has a do not disturb flag on their monitor and has noise canceling (laughs) headphones in and is clearly working on a large project or deliverable, like maybe ping them first or see what their (laughs) status is on Slack. I think there's way too much distracting going on in offices these days. So you're,
0: so your hand up saying, let's go fully back into open floor plan post- COVID.
1: Uh, not exactly. No, <laughs> no. I'm saying that like my dream is to have my own cubicle, that like the walls go up to the ceiling, and like no one. you're a big see cube me. guy. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> it is funny. I've started talking to people about our office we're doing an office redesign, and uh, cubes are back, baby. Mm. People are interested in the cube yeah which like all i have in my head is like the movie office space yeah. where it's like yeah. soul sucking just rows of cubes so we're yeah. gonna have to we got to figure out what we're gonna do there
1: well it's that it's uh the three c's right the healthy diet of office space which is concentration collaboration and community so like yeah who right? came up with that again lisa picard all right because I, yeah, I, yeah. I,
0: I was saying that to somebody the other yeah. day and i couldn't remember who mm-hmm. the reference was yes, so me. shout yeah. out lisa yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah
1: that yeah that was a great podcast that she's on but um so, like, I think, like, the way our office is set up right now is amazing collaboration and community space. But it's hard to, that, that concentration space, which people do need, particularly, like, I'm just so easily distracted. Right. Um, that, like, having that balance in some way, I think, is the ideal office setup. So, I guess that's probably my big pet peeve. Um, unpopular opinion. <laughs> uh, like, the, it's actually, I guess these are kind of aligned. I think work-wise, like, the amount of ways we have to communicate has in some ways, like, made things way worse for people. Mm. Like, the amount of notifications that come through, even if I try to turn them off on my computer and, like, getting slacks at all hours of the morning and night and, like, never really being offline because of how connected everyone is, I think is, while there's benefits to it, it's like... Can be very detrimental to people's mental health. Sure. And I feel like being kind of like coronavirus and being at home has been really tricky for that and kind of elevated that to an extent. Like it's hard to kind of stop working, I feel like, for a lot of people these days. And then I'll also say that I think avocados are extremely overrated. (laughs) They're just on. I was waiting (laughs) for this one. This has been. They're just on too many things. Like they're, it's not, I don't think they're bad to be clear. Like I don't dislike avocados, but they're just everywhere. It's, it's, they're on. Too many sandwiches and like it's always kind of getting pushed on you all the time and everyone's always raving about it and it's like it's just okay they're just okay <laughs> um and like dogs are better than cats but cats are really low, <laughs> and cats are incredibly low maintenance and i think a little bit like undervalued by a lot of people um you know how i feel about that one yeah yeah so most. i'm not
0: i'm not gonna get into the cat thing <laughs> i will say like i know a lot of people get angry at your avocado take mm-hmm. I'm not with you, but I'll say this. I'm not against you.
1: Yeah, it's just, it's just too much of it. I'll put it
0: that way. Like, I don't think they're overrated to the point that it never got on my radar. But when I've thought about it, I'm not against you. I'm going to be Switzerland on this one.
1: That's, that's fair. That's fair. I'm, I'm definitely out on a bit of a limb. You know, it's not the safest place to be with the avocado stance. Yeah, no, people, people get upset. People do get upset, um, but they're horrible for the environment and um, they're just overused. takes like an insane amount of water to grow avocado plants like compared to other
0: here we go here we go here we go all right uh speed a little game Mm -hmm. how long do you think it took them to build disneyland
1: is it disneyland the one in florida or the one in california california i bet they did it in in six months because disney's crazy
0: 366 days
1: okay wow one year pretty good That is incredible. (laughs) Right? Yeah. yeah. That place is enormous.
0: In Boston, you know, the little footbridge that goes across like near Seaport Boulevard.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: They've been talking about redoing that stupid little bridge for uh, four years. Yeah. I was going to say. Like they could have. They built Disneyland in a year. They've been talking about just knocking it down or not for four years. (laughs) So. uh, lack of speed um what others i gotta find one other for you uh we did learning so we did three all right we did, yeah, three. We did a lot of learning we got any other recurring that we like to ask
1: oh yeah how long is that how long you took
0: you think it took them to create the ipod
1: Ooh, that one feels like it would it would take a while i want to say they were working on that one like a bit i bet steve jobs told everybody to start working on that um like Three years before it came out,
0: two hundred ninety days. Jeez. crazy.
1: Yeah, you see Bill Burr is a great joke about uh about the iPod and Steve Jobs. Where it's like everyone thinks he's this incredible inventor. He basically just like told a bunch of engineers like take all of these records I have, <laughs> just put them into this tiny little box. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: Thousand songs in your pocket. Yeah. Yep. Amazing uh, idea. All right. Well we're at time here 232 cool good to have you on man sure
1: sure it won't be the last time hopefully not but this is it was great chatting about kind of the the experience the last couple years it's been a blast so thank you for having me thanks for coming on